This message by Mike Pluniak was recorded during a Sunday celebration service for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Mike serves as a pastor on staff at Cornerstone Church. Continuing our summer series on the minor prophets. The goal is for each week to cover one of these books, one of these books that breathe God's sovereignty and holiness and passion for his people. These books might be called minor because they are shorter in length, but they have a major message for us this summer, one that we need to hear and is very relevant to our lives today. So this morning our attention will be focused on the prophet Joel. And we're going to read chapter 1 of Joel, verses 1 through 12, to give us the context for this book. Joel 1, beginning in verse 1. This is God's word for us today. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it. And let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off the bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up. The oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up. The fig tree languishes. Pomegranate, palm, and apple, all the trees of the field are dried up. And gladness dries up from the children of man. Loss can be a very painful experience. In 1969, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross published her book titled On Death and Dying. In this book, she published for the first time her five stages of grief that have become so famous They've been quoted thousands of times, republished by other authors, used as a basis for movie plot lines, and have infiltrated 
our language as a culture. Her premise is that when someone experiences loss and the feeling of grief, they, in her opinion, always walk through these five stages. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and finally, acceptance. And many people may have experienced this pattern. And while this theory has been popular for the last 50 years, for hundreds and even thousands of years, God's Word has addressed how God's people respond to loss. Every person here has or will experience loss. It's just a nature of how God has created us on this earth. We lose relationships. We lose loved ones. We lose friendships for various reasons. Seasons change. Friends move. There are many who have lost a child to miscarriage. You can experience the loss of a job or income. The loss of a career of becoming something you've worked towards and realizing it's not going to happen. The loss of a dream. Proverbs 13, 12 says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick. We all eventually lose our health. It's a battle that will be lost eventually. As we age, we lose our youth and often things we could do then. We, we lose time. It, it's wasted and gone. They refer to the last year of kids' education as the lost year. Something we can't get back. Might even be something internal where we lose our joy. We lose our sense of purpose in God. What, what do we do when we experience loss? Where do we go? Well, the prophet Joel has been used by God's people for centuries as a guide for how to walk through loss. When God's people would experience national tragedies or loss or even personal grief, they would turn to the prophet Joel and they would find comfort and help and peace for their souls. Much like the five stages of grief, it gives us a pattern. Joel gives us a way to walk through loss and trials and hardship, but unlike the five stages of grief, it places God at the center of who we are to interact with. And the goal of Joel, as we're going to see this morning, is not just acceptance. It's not just accepting our loss and coming to grips with it. That's not where Joel is taking us. The goal is to know and enjoy God more. That's what he's going to show us this morning. The main point, I believe, God wants to show us this morning is that God uses loss to lead us to a deeper enjoyment of Him. And we're going to have four points this morning showing the pattern of how God uses loss to lead us to a deeper enjoyment of Him. Point number one is that loss is painful. Loss is painful. Joel and the rest of Scripture do not hide from the reality that loss is a painful experience. The circumstances of this book, as we've seen in chapter 1, are that God's people have been devastated by a plague of locusts. 
Now, we hear that today. For us, it might be hard to understand why locusts would be such a trial for them. One that Joel says in verse 3 that they're going to tell their children about this, and their children are going to tell their children, and their children are going to tell another generation of what has happened to them. This is a historic tragedy God's people are walking through. Now, we're kind of in a historic year ourselves right now, the year of the cicada, right? People have been sending me videos of cicadas climbing on trees and coming out of the ground and they're ooing and awing and we're amazed by the cicada and kids are collecting shells and I even saw now that on Etsy you can buy these souvenir shells of cicadas that they're selling to other people to to collect this year and remember it. People are even disappointed when cicadas haven't showed up in their yard. You know, we're so sad like why are they coming everywhere else but my yard? What did I do wrong? Even we, we, we read Joel and we read about these locusts and we can think, this is pretty cool, you know, a locust invasion. This is awesome. What a year this is for them. But to them, locusts weren't cool. They weren't collectible. They were not a delight. They meant devastation. They meant the loss of everything. This was an agricultural economy. Their livelihood, their families, their very lives depended on these crops. And as these locusts come through, we'll see in verse 4 that they consume everything in their path. Verse 6 describes them as having lion's teeth. They come by the millions, they swarm through over their crops, and everything is, is gone. So by verse 10, Joel is telling us, you know, the, the, the fields are destroyed, the ground mourns, there's no grain, there's no wheat, there's no barley, there's no vines, there's no wine, there's no fruit, there's nothing, everything is gone like that, and there is nothing that they can do to stop them. There's no grocery store down the street to replace their food. There's no Costco with giant shopping carts where they can just walk out and replace everything that was taken. Everything is gone. And you could imagine just reading chapter 1, the sense of hopelessness, the sense of despair. They just stood there and watched this happen and there's nothing they can do to stop it. A catastrophe like this threatening their very existence would have driven them to their knees. In verse 12, he even tells us gladness dries up. There's no joy. There's no celebration. There's no rejoicing. It is just sorrow and mourning and crying and wailing. Everything is gone. Loss is a painful experience. And it's into this circumstance, it's into this loss when God uses Joel to speak prophetically to God's people. It's in this moment when God comes to them through his prophet and addresses his people. Loss is painful. Point number two, pain leads to God-centered lament. Pain leads to God-centered lament. The question becomes... Where do God's people turn in their loss? Where do they go? Look down at chapter 1, 
verse 14. He says, he calls to them, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Verse 19 says, to you, O Lord, I cry, I call. Where do they go? God addresses them and he says, gather together and come into the house of the Lord your God. And he begins to invite them in their loss and in their grief to cry out to him. Verse 13 tells them to lament, to express their sorrow and grief and their struggle, to bring it to the Lord. God doesn't just say, hey, just Put on a smile or pretend this wasn't a painful experience for them. He says, you are experiencing loss and sorrow. Gather together. Come into my house. Cry out to me. Come to the Lord your God. Rather than driving them away from God, this loss drives them towards the Lord. And they begin to cry out to him. And we, we see this happen at times. I, I I don't know if it happens as much as it used to happen, but this happens to people when catastrophe strikes. In the early 1800s in Knoxville, there was a series of massive earthquakes. Probably the largest earthquakes in U.S. history, though there wasn't any scale to measure them at that point in time. In Knoxville, the, the, the newspapers write about how the earth swelled and sank and buildings shook and collapsed and, and they were in West Tennessee but even in Knoxville it just everything was going crazy they said the French Broad River had a 30 to 40 foot tidal wave coming down the river during these earthquakes Jack Neely a local historian writes about it in his book Secret History he quotes local papers of the time, people saying that it was the end of the world. And they began praying. They began crying out. At that point in time, the South was not a very religious place. And he quotes one local paper that said this right after the earthquakes. It said, a wonderful change has taken place in the manners of the people. I think what has been done may be termed a revival of religion. Following The following year after the earthquakes, church membership in the South went up by 50% in one year. And it continued over the years to grow and grow and grow, where Jack Neely makes an interesting connection. He says, is the Bible belt of today the earthquake belt of 1811? Because people, as things were happening, they began to cry out. When things like this happen, when comfort and the illusion that we are in control are removed from us, it makes us look upward. It makes us cry out. It's a wake-up call to God's people. Bill spoke about this last week from Hosea, that these minor prophets are going to be a wake-up call to us this summer. And this tragedy is used by God to be a wake-up call for God's people. And the prophet Joel, God himself, uses this national catastrophe as a wake-up call. And he uses it to prophetically point God's people to another 
reality. He uses this, the locust and the invasion, as a metaphor for something that is coming, another catastrophe, another day, what the prophet Joel calls the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord's judgment. Look at chapter 1, verse 15. As he gathers the people together in this solemn assembly, assembly, he says, Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. And as destruction from the Almighty, it comes. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. And then chapter 2, verse 11. The Lord utters his voice before his army. For his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? It's like the prophet Joel looks around at the destruction around them. And he says to the people, you haven't seen anything yet. Which, you know, this army of locusts has come through, their teeth destroying everything in their path. And he begins to prophetically communicate to God's people, there is another day coming when everything will be destroyed. Everything will be laid bare. Everything will be uncovered. Everything will be exposed. And this might sound harsh to you. It might sound unloving. But God is using Joel to give them an eternal perspective. To wake them up. To awaken them from their day-to-day lives and this comfort and this ease. And and to draw their gaze so that they would cry out to Him and know Him. So easy to get consumed in the details of day-to-day life. That we often forget about God. We can forget about the things of God. We don't fellowship with God. We don't pray to God. And God sovereignly uses these moments of loss so that we will come to Him to give us perspective into eternal things. And so it's like Joel is saying to the people, there's something worse that can happen to you than losing your crops. There is a worse judgment that can come and this day is coming closer every day and this is a worse day if we don't know the Lord our God. If we go through life and we enjoy our crops and we enjoy all these blessings but we don't know the Lord, there is a worse day coming. There's something worse that's going to happen to us than what we've witnessed with this locust invasion. God is waking them up. And he's calling them to cry out to him and to know him. And the message of Joel, this is the the wake-up call after this loss, but the message of Joel is not one of unrelenting doom. Chapter 1 and 2 kind of lends itself that way. That's kind of the bad news of Joel. But the message is not one of unrelenting doom and judgment. It's also a message of hope. Okay, it's a message of hope. Loss is painful. Pain leads to this God-centered lament where we cry out to God. And point number three, lament leads to deliverance. 
leads to deliverance. As they come to the Lord, as they bring their grief and their sorrow and they come into the house of the Lord, they're going to find these amazing promises from God rooted in God's character. Look down with me at chapter 2, verse 12. Listen to what the Lord says to them as they come to Him. He says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. God wants their hearts. He wants them to come to him, to to cry out to him. He wants us to turn from trusting in ourselves and depending on ourselves, to turn from being self-sufficient to turn from loving God's gifts more than the giver himself. And so he, he removes these blessings. He sends these locusts. They cry out to him. And then when they come to him, he, he reminds them of who he is, what kind of God he is. He says, return to me. Bring your hearts to me. Don't just tear your garments. Rend your hearts to the Lord. When we experience loss, It leads us back to rend our hearts to God. When we look around and things are removed and we experience loss, we we cry out to God and all of a sudden God meets with us and he reminds us of who he is and what he is like and what he's done for us. And he reminds us of these eternal truths and promises that he has given to us. And it shows us, it reminds us that we, we love God Because he's God. We don't love God just because of the blessings we have. We don't love God just because of the things he gives us. We love God because he's worthy. Because he is the ruler. He is sovereign. He is the king. It brings us back to rend our hearts to God. Think about Job. I mean, he was a man who lost everything. He lost his family, his livelihood, his possessions, his health, his friends, his reputation. Job had everything removed. And what's his response? He says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Listen to Christopher Ashe in his wonderful commentary on Job. He says, when Jesus returns... The fact that a Christian has gone on trusting and believing even though all the blessings have been removed and he has suffered severe trials will prove to the universe that another human being considers God to be worthy of worship simply because he is God. God will be praised his glory adored, and his honor seen by the universe because Christian men and women have gone on worshiping him when all the blessings have been taken away. That's what we see happening in Joel. These blessings being removed. Them experiencing great loss. They cry out to God. And when they cry out to him, when they begin to commune with God, he reminds them 
of who he is, of what kind of God they are dealing with. In verse 13, it says, Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious. He is merciful. He is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He delivers them. He relents. That's our God. That's who he is. We don't return to the Lord after experiencing loss, and we don't find him shaking his head in disappointment. We don't find him frustrated with us and impatient, kind of, you know, tapping his foot and wondering, where have you been all this time? Why haven't you been praising me? Why haven't you been worshiping me? Why haven't you been praying to me? Where have you been? We don't find a God who is angry and harsh, but we come to him, we cry out to him, and we find a God who is gracious. He's full of grace for us. We find a God who is merciful, who doesn't treat us as our sins deserve, but gives us the opposite of that which we deserve. We find a God who is abounding in steadfast love. We cry out to him in our suffering and our loss, and he's like the father of the prodigal son. Remember, the son returns and the father just runs and embraces him and loves him and throws a feast for him. When we cry out to God, that is how God responds to us. He is our heavenly Father who cares for us. And so they return to the Lord. They come to God and he meets with them. And he reminds them, I love you and I care for you and I'm for you and I'm merciful and gracious towards you. You see this pattern forming here in Joel. God uses loss to lead us to a deeper enjoyment of him. And God delivers them, not just from disaster. He doesn't just deliver them from disaster, but it's in a deeper sense. He delivers them from themselves. He uses loss to lead their hearts to know him in a deeper way so that on that day of the Lord, they will be delivered from his judgment. And as they come to God, he begins to comfort them and to make promises to them, to point towards a glorious future that they will have with him. And so he redeems all this loss and he begins to meet with his people. And he begins to use the prophet Joel to speak this comfort and these promises and these good things that he's going to do in their lives. And so we see loss is painful. And this pain leads us to this God-centered lament. And we cry out to God. And God delivers us. And then finally, point number four. Is that deliverance leads to joy in God. We begin to experience this new joy in the Lord. He begins to make these promises to us and to meet with us. Look over in Joel chapter 2 beginning in verse 23. As the people cry out and he reminds them of who he is. He begins to make these promises to his people in verse 23. He says, be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. For he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain. The early and the latter rain is before. The threshing floor shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. 
I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. They come to God and they worship God and God relents and He provides more abundantly for them than they could even imagine. He says, it's been destroyed, but rain is going to come and there is going to be grain and wine and you're going to be satisfied. There's going to be plenty and you're going to be satisfied. And here's the most important part, verse 26. You're going to be satisfied and you're going to praise the name of the Lord your God. You're going to know who's done this for you. You're going to know who's worked wondrously among you. You're going to know who provided for you. You're going to remember God has done this. And you're going to give God all the glory. And not only is he going to provide for them, but I love verse 25 of chapter 2, where God makes this promise to them. I'm going to restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. These years that you've lost, all this work, all this effort, all this sowing, all this planting, all this tilling, all the things that you've lost, years of provision you've lost, I'm going to restore all of that back to you. All of us here this morning, in some ways, every single one of us, we, we experience loss, lost opportunities, Lost opportunities with family and friends. Lost opportunities in our parenting. Lost moments to grow in our souls. Wasted time where we look back and we just go, it is gone. There's no getting that back. What have I done? I just remember John Piper reading this book uh, with the the teenagers right now this summer, Don't Waste Your Life. And John Piper having this memory of his dad sitting with an old man just telling his father, I've wasted it just wasted my life. I love verse 25 because it holds a promise for us. Listen to James Boyce. He says, God can change all that. We cannot undo what is done. Sin is sin and the effects of sin often continue for long periods, but God can restore what the locusts have eaten. Opportunities may have been lost, but God can give new and even better opportunities. Friends may have been alienated and driven away, but God can give new friends and even restore many of the former ones. God can break the power of sin and restore a personal holiness and joy that would not have been dreamed possible in the rebellion. God can change it all. They come to God and they've lost everything. God says, I'm going to give you even more than you had before. You come to me, you worship me, I deliver you, and I'm going to provide for you. And this goes beyond in our text. This is what's amazing about our text because it's not just 
It's not about the material provision. It's not about the crops and the food. God is telling them there's even something better I want to give you. I'm I'm giving you this loss. I'm the one sending these locusts. They're coming through and destroying by my hand, but I'm leading you to myself. And I'm going to give you even something better than you had before. Look at chapter 2, verse 28. Okay, God's not done speaking to them. I'm going to restore these years that the locust has eaten in verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out out my spirit in verse 32 and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the lord shall be saved not only am i going to fill all your threshing floors not only am i going to fill all your barrels but i'm going to do something better i'm going to give you something more than just this provision i'm going to give you my spirit I'm going to give you myself in this abundant and this new way. And it's going to be overflowing and it's going to satisfy and it's going to be good. And sometimes in Old Testament prophecies, it's hard to figure out exactly when they are fulfilled. But this is not one of those prophecies. In the very first Christian sermon after the ascension of Jesus... Peter quotes these verses in Acts chapter 2. And you remember this moment as as Jesus ascends to go to be with the Father. And he tells them, hey, I'm going to send somebody to be with you. I'm going to send a counselor. I'm going to send help for you. And he says, wait here for the promise. And I'm going to empower you to be my witness. And so they're gathered together and they're waiting on the Lord. And all of a sudden, The Holy Spirit begins to descend on God's people and they're filled with the Spirit of God and they begin to speak in these tongues and these different languages and they begin to go out in the streets and they begin to tell of the mighty works of God. And Peter and and all the men in Jerusalem are going, what is going on here? This is something new and, and it's not even the afternoon yet and these men and these women are drunk. And Peter stands up in front of the masses And this is where he goes. He says, no, this is what God promised. Remember, when the people had lost and they came to God and he began to make promises to them, he promised them that he would pour out his spirit on his people, that he would provide for them abundantly, that God's spirit would fill all of God's people. Joel is telling them, God's not only going to restore what's lost, but he's going to do something better in you. He's going to give you something better than a full threshing floor of grain. Something better than vats overflowing with wine and oil. Something better than an abundance of stuff. He's going to give you his Holy Spirit himself. And if you know the storyline of the Bible, then you know that this promise is fulfilled because of Jesus Christ. Because of what Christ has done by dying for our sins. Joel looks out into a future when God will bless all of his people with his Holy Spirit. And Christ comes 
and he lives for us and he dies for our sins. And after he ascends to this father, this promise comes to be on God's people. And after Peter proclaims, this is what God is doing through Christ because he died for our sins, because you crucified him. He is blessing us with his presence and his spirit. And it's for all God's people. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 39, Peter finishes by saying, this promise is for you and your children and all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. This is a promise for you this morning. This offer is open to all. It's open to all peoples. Not only would Israel be blessed, but all nations, all people, everyone who turns from their sin, returns to the Lord, puts their faith in Jesus Christ, receives this blessing of the Holy Spirit. Paul, in Romans 10, verses 12 through 13, he uses Joel, this verse, Joel 2.32. He says, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In this life, nothing lasts. Everything eventually is lost. Trying to hold on to it, it's like trying to hold sand in your hand. We try to hold on to our health. We try to hold on to these relationships, to our loved ones. We try to hold on to our stuff. We just, we try to grab on. And and the tighter, it's like the tighter we squeeze the sand, the quicker it comes out the bottom. Eventually, everything is lost. But there's something here God promises that lasts forever. He says, you're going to lose this, but I'm I'm leading you to me so you find something that lasts forever, knowing God through Jesus Christ. He is eternal. He is unchanging. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved for all eternity. I don't think I can put it better than Jim Elliott. When he says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. That's kind of the the progression of Joel. The people experience this great loss. And they cry out to the Lord. They, They come and they lament and they cry to God. And God meets with them. And he reminds them of who he is. They return to the Lord. They begin to worship the Lord. And they come back to God and he reminds them, this is what you were made for. This is the blessing. This is the promise. This is the good you were created for to know me. And I think we will find this pattern true in our lives again and again and again and again. Because we find it throughout scripture. I was even talking to someone this morning out front as they were coming in, asking them how they were doing. And they had lost some of their health. They're recovering from surgery. And they were just telling me, you know, uh, it's a loss. And I cry out to the Lord. And I've just grown deeper to know God. I've been more thankful for this church. I know God better because of this. And I thought that's the pattern over and over and over. I remember when I was in college... I was working uh, in the library at the University of Tennessee, a wonderful job, by the way, if you're a college student, and I got a phone call to the library. This was before 
cell phones, so I didn't have a cell phone. So I got a phone call where my boss came and found me and told me, hey, your mom's on the phone, which is never a good thing if your mom tracks you down like that. So I go to the phone, and I, my mom's on the phone, and she's crying, and she said, hey, your grandfather, your grandpa passed away today. And it was the first time I remember in my life losing somebody close to me, and it was a loss, and it was sad, and I was grieving. I flew out to Nebraska for the funeral. My, my grandfather was a World War II veteran, and so I remember at the funeral, they had an old uh, friend of his who was a vet who was wearing his uniform, and he played taps at the end of the funeral on a trumpet. Probably the saddest thing I've ever heard. And I remember going back to the airport and just feeling so sad and just grieving and missing my grandfather and experiencing loss and death and having to be confronted with that. I was a brand new Christian. I'd been a Christian for about a year. Uh, I believe my grandfather was a Christian, but I didn't know that well because I was a new Christian. And I went to the get on the plane and it was just pouring outside. It was dark. It was gloomy. The plane was half empty. And I remember the back of the plane was half empty. And so I just went to go sit by myself. And so I sat in an emergency exit row where you had to do the little door. I was probably 19 years old. And the, the, the stewardess comes to me and she says, I'm sorry, son, but you have to be at least 14 to sit in this row. <laughs> and I remember looking up at her. It's like, lady, this is the worst day of my life. You're just like pouring salt in the wounds. And so I didn't even say anything. I just got up and left. And I just went. <laughs> and I went all the way to the back of the plane, right by the bathrooms. I was all by myself. And I just was so sad. I remember grieving. And as the plane took off, it was raining out. It was dark. It was cloudy. And we hit the clouds. And we hit this turbulence. And we kind of started shaking through the clouds. And I thought, this is great. Just send the plane down. You know, like, I don't even care anymore. And I just remember this moment where we broke through the clouds. And it was like the sun hit me in the face. It was so bright. And I looked out the window. And we were above the clouds. And it was one of the most beautiful sights. I mean, above those clouds, it was just sky. And the sun was there. And you can call me a charismatic. But it was the Lord spoke to me in that moment. He comforted me. It was like the Lord reminded me. The sun is still shining. Up above these clouds, up above the darkness, up above your sadness, the, the Lord is still there. The sun still rises. It's still there. God is still sovereign. God is still good. He's still on his throne. He still reigns. And I was so comforted in the back of that plane by the presence of the Lord. I even forgave the stewardess. You know, I was like, it's okay. I look like a child. I get it, you know, but... The Lord met with me. And I think in our lives, what Joel is saying again and again and again, this is the pattern that we will find. We experience loss. You lose something. There's grieving. There's sadness. We know we grieve about these things. We all experience it. Where do we go? We go to the Lord. We turn to the Lord. We cry out to the Lord. God meets with us. He draws us closer. He reminds us who he is. He comforts us. We know God in a deeper way. God uses loss to lead us to a deeper enjoyment of him. And you will find this true in your life time and time again. Let's pray.
Father, this morning. I thank you for your word. I thank you that your word will always prove true. I thank you for reminding us this morning, Lord, that you are a gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Thank you, Lord, for calling us to return to you. And every person here this morning, I know in, in different ways we've experienced loss. And we, we have that sense of losing things and losing friends and losing time. And yet you call us to return to you. So I pray for this congregation this morning, Lord, that they would enjoy a deeper fellowship with you. That when we have that sense, we would turn to you and cry out to you. That you would meet with us. That you would comfort us. That you would send your spirit, Lord, to fill us. To guide us. That we would know you. That even as we heard that testimony this morning, we would be known as a people who know our God. Who love our God. And love one another. So meet with us this morning, Lord. Comfort your people this morning, Father, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message given by Mike Pluniak during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.